Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Today, I'm in conversation with Sai Krishna, a serial entrepreneur who built three deep tech startups and took them through successful acquisitions. Sai currently leads Flipkart Labs, where he focuses on new deep tech initiatives such as camera and NFTs, Web3, etc. The conversation is so interesting that we decided to publish it in two parts. In this episode, Sai Krishna talks about hailing from a South Indian family that emphasized education and after moving to Bangalore to continue his education, being attracted to build products and how he built the first product in the education space. He shares also the need to think like an entrepreneur and how he started his first company, Scapic, with a focus on augmented reality and virtual reality as the core technologies, which was later acquired by Flipkart. I asked him about how he approaches identification of problems to solve, where he shares different models that can be used, and also what happens when the team and the market are great or one of them is lousy, etc. He also shares how to think scale and the importance of obsessing over the first cohort for a startup and the value of creating a playbook after validation and further experimentation with the second and third cohorts, and the differences between B2B and B2C solutions. Listen on. Welcome to the Software People Stories, Sai. Thank you so much for having me in chief. Yeah, the first time I heard about you, I was fascinated. I said, man, I must get your story. Partly because of all the things that you have done, and partly also because I am completely uh, kind of hesitant, I would say, maybe afraid of this whole metaverse thing. So I, I probably felt that I would get lost if I get in. So I've not even attempted to try anything yet. So probably right. with uh, some of your things. But then before we get to that, uh, maybe we can start with your origin story, how you got interested or how you got into all these things. And then what has been your uh, the various adventures, as you were calling it. Adventures, misadventures, uh, I think there's a bunch of buckets that we could put the whole journey in. Uh, sure. But the whole chapter started back uh, deep down south. I was uh, born in uh, Chennai. And one of the things that goes with that uh, origin is that your uh, your parents really want you to do one thing, which is score more than your neighbor does, right? So mm -hmm. that uh, the the tussle between the two houses is in order. That's mm -hmm. really what uh, what my backdrop was, which is a focus on academia. Uh, which I was clearly not good at, and uh, and hence I was a I was already a misfit uh, as I started my journey through. Uh, spent some of my time through in Chennai, and then subsequently moved to Bangalore. Um, so spent the rest of my schooling here in Bangalore, and uh, went on to study in a Bangalore-based engineering college called Darby College of Engineering. And uh, Darby is this sort of strange place where you almost. Uh, 
you you either aspire for it or more often than not you actually fail down to an rv which is it's it's almost like one or two layers of separation away from what you would have really wanted uh, through the entrance examinations that you're written so as all of us entered rv there was a sense of delight that uh, it is rv but there was also a sense of morbid despair that we perhaps punched lower than what we all thought we should be right so uh, it was a, it was an environment that was very fascinating uh, through the four years but much like any other college i think most of my life started to revolve around classes how do i bunk these classes how do i do when i'm bunking these classes somewhere down that line i think there was a bit of a discomfort saying there is absolutely there's no, nothing that differentiates my existence from anybody else uh, for that matter and that's really when i had the fascination of just building things right like gunslinging towards uh, trying to understand what product building could be and how this uh, how this whole stack came together i started building products since i was in college not because we knew what entrepreneurship was or we knew what ventures are or startups can turn to be because you just had fun trying to do right the attempt or the pursuit was the only thing that we engineered or optimized for and you just hope for the best that's where the misgivings are a lot more than the givings which is the number of mistakes i would have probably done were innumerable which is committed every possible mistake in the book before uh, before the first product got out of the window and it was in the education space we were able to build and scale that to a certain extent and take that to its logical conclusion it was a lot of fun over the over a year and a half in college where i had nothing to lose right like when you mentioned that uh, some of, some of these technologies could look intimidating it definitely was just as intimidating back then but uh, what did i have to lose right like uh, grades that could have gotten worse than what they already were they were pretty bad in the first place so uh, it it sort of gave a person the audacity to try right and uh, to try at least i did so i spent about three out of the four years in uh, engineering undergrad attempting to build products two outcomes one of which had an exit one of which uh, i cut myself on which is i learned what not to do i took my learnings from there took a pause and said you're thinking like a college student right in terms of how you're going about building products how do you think a little bit more like an entrepreneur and a little less like uh, just an undergrad i applied for an entrepreneurship stint at stanford and then subsequently got in went on a went on a partial scholarship wrapped that up and came back to india uh, as i came back to india i found uh, my co-founder uh, and uh, in, in the bay area and what we wanted to do was build something in the deep tech space uh, something that was profound and something that was near science fiction right because i believed that the early part of my 20s is when i can take a wild swing right i truly had uh, uh, one the possibility to and two the courage to and i thought both will start to dwindle as uh, time progresses so if i were to take uh, one real swing of the bat for a home run this could be it and that's when we started building scapic which was back then it wasn't even called the metaverse it was called virtual reality augmented reality spatial computing and so we started building a no code platform that just made it easy for everybody else to be involved in the space that was then acquired by flipkart or the walmart group and uh, since then it's just been about trying to deepen my roots into building either products or uh, backing uh, startups and founders in the whole metaverse realm because i remain optimistic that over this decade the way you and i interact will probably end up being in a 3d space by at least when we finish this decade instead of a zoom call so that is sort of the thesis and that's the hope 
But what really got me started was the discomfort that both the samosas were bad as well as the time that I was wasting in college could be spent uh, in, in some interesting fashion or the other. So it was naivety on one side and just an audacious amount of uh, experimentation on the other side. Yeah, so how do you select a problem to solve, particularly when you're looking at an unexplored area? There are probably so many things that would have excited you. So how do you stay away from a lot of things and then pick only a few? I would put three phases to any founder's problem search as such. Right? And the first phase is the shiny toy syndrome, right? which is this technology is cool. I wish to be associated with this piece of technology or this hot new space. And I want to build something in this space. Right? And the shiny toy syndrome is more often than not uh, what every first-time founder or college entrepreneur sort of runs towards. Space technology is cool. I suddenly want to build a space tech startup. 3D printing was cool uh, 10 years ago. Uh, you're devoting your life in order to get that going. Or in between this, something else is now the new trend in town and you're trying to build on top of this thing. Shiny toys are great because they give you the illusion that you're doing meaningful work. Right? But shiny toys are absolutely horrible from the standpoint of venture building because you've not selected the idea from solid foundations or like first principles and some might work but most will not work if you're chasing a shiny toy and most of mine definitely didn't work so took my learnings from there and then went on to uh, the second phase as we call it as which is uh, uh, pursuing a problem that your uh, expertise commands which is over a period of time you start realizing that you sort of have this wagon wheel of uh, things that you can do and you're good at and complementary skills that the rest of your team brings to the table and thereby sort of rounds off the concept of uh, this, this structure which can go and attempt to solve a problem. Uh, these founders can then pick a certain problem statement that they're very familiar with, right? Uh, if I have built a company in the SaaS space previously, the chances of me picking my next firm in the SaaS space again remains fairly high. Familiarity to the industry at a founder's level is a great function of accelerating the time to market as well as uh, sort of lubricating their uh, their knowledge to be put back into the next venture that they're building per se. This is mostly where a lot of the entrepreneurs operate, uh, where they've attempted to build a company in a certain space. It could have had a result that could have gone either ways. It's, an, it's either an exit or it's like it's stalled out. But you again attempt to building something in that space with, with, with a slightly different twist. And uh, the familiarity this time gets you a lot further. The third sort of uh, tier uh, where I would put select entrepreneurs and a lot of us perhaps should attempt to get there, but we need to spend some time before we understand it fully is big market. Very few entrepreneurs actually go after massive market opportunities and realize that no matter what, the market always wins. Right? And there's this quote which says, uh, a lousy team meets a great market, the market wins. Right. Uh, a great team meets a lousy market, the market still wins. It's only when a great team or a good team meets a great market do you have non-linear outcomes. So it takes a little bit of time before we realize as much as our skills, as much as our abilities and our teams are grit, spit and duct tape take us a distance, markets are very crucial as deciding functions to the success or failure of your efforts. And the third wave of these founders is when idea selection happens at a market filter as compared to a familiarity filter or a shiny toy filter. And that is what I would put as the three waves that uh, I have at least seen uh, problem classification to happen. So you kind of answered 
another question that I was having as a follow-up, which is when you pick something, how do you think scale when you don't even know what shape it's going to take? Visualizing the finish line is perhaps one of those uh, nuanced areas in, in venture building where all of us expect the finish line to actually be a goalpost, right? Something that doesn't change, something that's rigid, fixed, right? What does success look like 10 years from now? Yeah, fortunate part is it always changes, right? And so visualizing a rigid finish line is never the Rather, what we could think of is visualizing the next carrot, right? The next reason or the next immediate cause for you to devote your time, attention and energy to as a milestone, as an unlock of value or as the next uh, beachhead for you to go after so that your startup just sees it through, right? The default state of a startup is to just stay alive, thrive and kick in. Now, we don't need to necessarily get it right at a 10-year price. We perhaps need to understand where the markets are going over 10 years, but remain very nimble about the way we execute for what happens in two months, perhaps, right? So understanding the larger picture is never about sizing a TAM or just looking at whether there are $100 billion worth of uh, an opportunity cost to go after, but simply understanding if I am operating a narrow enough niche and, and more often than not, the narrower the niche is in the early days, it's actually the better. So if you crack that, you would be able to automatically from there, take that as the beachhead and then expand on to ancillary markets, which are just huge in opportunity by themselves. So as long as we have a sense of what's my beachhead, how do I then expand from there to the next logical areas of success? but really get tactical about how do I achieve success for my first implementation, first launch, first feature. That helps us remain grounded and rooted in the short term to actually something that ships and remain fairly optimistic in the long term that this is not a straight line, but uh, is going to be more of a maze that we sort of uh, unlock. And the only thing that's important as we unlock, I'll go from one point of time to the other in the maze is if you have enough fuel in the tank and enough of a market to go after. Uh, and that should uh, make life a lot easier because operating in that uncertainty is the very act of starting now. But when you target a global market or a global segment, I mean, multiple segments of users, how do you start? How do you pick ones? And then how do you still have the flexibility to be able to expand and reach out to everyone without burning? That's a tricky one, for sure. I would attribute a lot of this to how the last wave of SaaS startups, as well as the current wave of Web3 startups uh, tend to achieve this, uh, which is a lot of playbook building, which remains fiercely local uh, to the cohort, but the playbook has the ability to be replicated globally. What do I mean by that is uh, we could have a payments processor, we could have a DeFi startup, we could have uh, a startup in the metaverse space, for example, right? And each one of these operates with different customer cohorts, operates with different geographies for such cohorts, as well as over a period of time, involves customers who are less technically qualified than their first cohort of customers as they come by. So there's like a dilutive issue, there's a geography issue, and sort of a cultural or a context issue as you sort of go as a global player. So step one is to forget the globe for a second and forget on your, and just focus on your first cohort, right? If you're not going to get your first cohort happy, you will not get any of your other cohorts happy, right? And uh, I think a lot of startups think that they can play their catch-up game, right? Like ship a fairly crappy product to their first cohort and then play catch-up towards their next cohort of customers. The problem is your first cohort is the one that's given you the most tolerance, right? Like they have, uh, they've taken the most risk in terms of even trying to identify and understand what your product is up to. So how do you nail your first cohort should be the only thing that you worry about, the absolute paramount. 
right? Once you have that in place, you then get to the world of, I would say, pattern matching and then playbook building and then scale, right? And uh, I would put cohort one to cohort two is really about understanding small patterns that are repeating between these sets of users and how they are behaving with each other or with the product or a certain um, social graph or work graph or commerce graph that your product might have. Once you have some of these patterns in place, we reinforce these patterns by just testing that out with a slightly larger cohort in order to get some amount of statistical significance that, okay, some assumptions here seem to be holding true. As you move from your second to your next three cohorts, let's say, uh, the first thing that you attempt to do is to build a playbook, a least common denominator of what the product is supposed to achieve uh, what is the true value it holds in terms of either making you money or saving you time? And in between this, what is the tolerance towards feature requests, your time to reply on your SLAs or the product features being explained well enough on your pages? You get a sense by the second cohort on whether this is working or people are unhappy. And by the time you do this, you get to build that into a small playbook. Once the playbook is in place, you then attempt to do that for a slightly different geography or a slightly different customer erudacy in terms of the their technical understanding of the product or a slightly different uh, context of the customer as they're going after. Uh, the playbook will most likely have areas that require dramatic amounts of improvement, but that's the very reason why it's a playbook. Almost a living document that over a period of time has enough to reinforce and back it up so that it's able to move that forward. Uh, so I would put it as cohort one, obsess over them, pattern match what's happening in cohort one, attempt between cohort two and three to build a playbook around this. Look to scale the playbook, but don't attempt to prematurely scale uh, because only if you really understand what's happening with your users and what's happening on the playbook with respect to your users, does scale come into the picture. Uh, going, flipping the switch and going global is not nearly as difficult as getting it right. Uh, for example, Netflix went global over 143 countries with one launch in E3 uh, back uh, half a decade ago. Uh, and this was fairly quick, fairly fast, fairly global. Uh, but that's really because they understood their core product and what their users wanted of it and how they're able to then ramp it up to more countries because as a software product, you are not geographically restricted. So while thinking of scale, it's super useful to understand the, the potential, but really, you, really beneficial for you to just obsess over your first cohort and then move it forward from there. Yeah, the Netflix example is uh, great, but then their product and the way it is consumed is probably very similar across. Right. Maybe culturally, there may be preferences and all that, but otherwise, when you have more of a technology solution, I mean, the use cases could be discovered by your uh, consumers. Very true. In that case, and also, is there a difference between of a B2B market and a B2C market when you talk about these cohorts and experimenting with one and expanding to others? In the B2C market, one of the stories that I've heard from the earliest of folks at Uber could be interesting, which is uh, an aggressive amount of expansion, but also uh, a lot of localization to what goes uh, into building a product, say for Ahmedabad, could be very different from what is for Amsterdam, could be very different from what's for Austin. Uh, Indonesia could be heavily reliant on bike taxis. Uh, tier two, tier three, India might not even rely on Uber right now to begin. So how do you even start cultivating that culture? While New York is really just all about, just get me a taxi, I don't, 
I don't care about the price at this point, right? Like so, there are areas where a company like Uber executed where they would have squads, squads who are built purely in order to go activate a certain city, listen through to the customers, and look at the feature prioritization that is typically required there in order to set that city up for success. So while the expansion globally was fairly aggressive. Uh, it was not done from a central war room or anything like that it was not done in a very assumptive manner that san francisco will get it right for the rest of the world it was done with some amount of grounding that uh, every city is possibly going to have a uniquely different way that the onboarding of the supply side happens which is the drivers uh, the features that the specific city or the country would demand be different from one another and the pricing the lucrative bonuses as well as additional things that make uber well uber uh, could be different from an india to an indonesia to uh, the middle east to usa and one such implementation like i said was the five to six member squads that used to go to each city and activate each one of them and set that up for success the second uh, at a saas product uh, could be perhaps what someone like a chargebee does chargebee is perhaps a super inspirational story from india where a payments processor could be built out as a multi billion dollar out and one of the ways that chargebee went after their cohort of users was to look at the biggest users of stripe and look at the most often uh, requested issues or requested features that a user in inside the stripe ecosystem is making in order for stripe to start incorporating them in and then prioritize that set of users in order to be the ones that you uh, tended to first so chargebee was able to be faster more nimble cheaper in some ways uh, for the customer because when you sort of do a bunch of these automations you are able to save on a significant amount of costs there so the way they went after they they really cracked india first and the way they went after a global audience as they did that was you were able to deploy specific customer success teams to verticals or industries so i would have three customer success folks just call every fintech provider out there and tell them your payments reconciliation or uh, the very fact that some of these payments are not recurring often enough uh, is because you have you are using a slightly less reliable payments processor here's a very obvious reason you should switch to charge me by the way i've looked at the forums and i've looked at the feature requests that you guys have already been making i've already built them into a charge me now if i'm on a discovery call like that i'm like where have you been all this while right so i believe that there is a slightly personal touch to it on one side with the likes of uber and charge be having dedicated squads there is a feature parity between my aspiration and what my business wants and what these products build or i build either without permission or just work closely with you in order to put together to activate a certain geography on the other side and as this happens you rely on say a reseller a partner program or additional ways in order to in order to truly reach out to geographies where you might not know enough about say south korea right where there are some of the most thriving partner programs and reseller programs happen in such uh, areas where these smaller partners are able to then facilitate deal flow as well as a bd engine while they are also able to translate to you what might uh, a geography like that require from a product that uh, you are building through so i think there are multiple ways to reach the end point but i think the common themes are utilizing someone in the geography who has context like a partner utilizing a squad which is able to personalize this whole touch point and experience and utilizing your engineering team in order to create something that is differentiated enough that they give you a long hard look before they commit to i think are three ways that you can you can attempt to get closer to success in the next part we continue the conversation where we shares how organizations can be built and how building a decentralized 
a scalable model with a focus on differentiation through engineering as well as having local partners and various other things related to how to build an organization, how to build a team and his perspectives on technologies as well as the metaverse. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.